Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited Kristen Van Eyck to this podcast episode to speak with us about language and literacy and the ways teachers across all the content areas can acknowledge and support their students' language identities. Kristen is a visiting assistant professor of English at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, where she teaches first-year writing and advises first-year students. Before teaching at Hope, Kristen taught literature at Calvin University and first-year writing at the University of Michigan. Kristen began her career in the 912 ELA classroom, teaching for nine years before beginning her doctoral work. Kristen's current research with multilingual students investigates how students negotiate their multiple languages to construct their identities and authority in the writing classroom. Kristen taught high school English for Englishes for nine years in Grand Rapids, Michigan, before pursuing her PhD in English and education at the University of Michigan. Kristen is particularly interested in how people use language and interpret its use to signify power and belonging. Kristen, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you. Thanks for having me. So for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to take turns asking, <clears throat> sorry, I say it. for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to take turns asking you some questions. How does that sound? Sounds great. We'd love to hear some of your story, particularly as it connects to your interest in and passion for studying language. Sure. So I've been an English teacher since 2006, and perhaps like many of your listeners, I decided to become a teacher because I had so many fantastic teachers when I was in school. And in particular, my English teachers really inspired my love for reading and for writing, and they encouraged my intellectual development along the way. So I became an English teacher and a few years into my teaching career, I had the opportunity to develop some new courses. So here's a question that I don't think teachers get to ask frequently enough. If you could teach anything at all, what would you teach? So maybe it's a particular period of history or a favorite set of books. So for me, my favorite English topic to teach is writing, followed closely by short nonfiction essays. So I taught contemporary nonfiction for several years in addition to several composition courses. And what I learned through that teaching is that there was a lot about teaching writing that I didn't know that I wanted to know. And I was working on a master's degree at the time in English and decided I think I should learn about teaching writing instead. So I changed from an English master's to an education master's, but I, in some ways I picked the wrong program because I had a degree in leadership and administration, which is not teaching writing. So instead of doing a second master's, I decided, okay, I'm gonna do a PhD. So in 2016, I started a PhD in English and education. And that's where I learned that there's a whole bunch of people who study composition and the teaching of writing, and they're called rhetoricians. I had no idea that this even existed. Because I wanted to know more about teaching writing, I did a joint program in English and in education. And that's where I learned a whole bunch of things about teaching writing and language that I think are really important now in the high school classroom setting. So first, is this, it's that learning to write and teaching writing is really all about learning about yourself. So language and identity and culture, these things are tied together. You cannot disentangle them from one another and you can't authentically advance as a writer or a teacher of writing or a storyteller or a research reporter without thinking really deeply and meaningfully about what language means to you. So most people, including our students, they mediate their worlds, their identities, their relationships, all of this through language. But we don't very often talk about language and the work that it does. So this is one thing that we've got to bring into the, the 9-12 setting. I also learned that teaching writing is about relationships. So it's about me as a reader 
being in relationship with students and they are the readers and the writers also. So this is true across all subject areas because we read and write in all subject areas. And I'm not always the student's primary audience. So it's my job to help students identify who they wanna be as writers in relation to their subjects and their audience. And we're gonna negotiate all of that together through language. So an understanding of what language is and how it works for me and for others is critical in the teaching and, the, and learning in all subject areas. That's what I do now as a Hope College professor. As an English teacher, I teach about language and its power and the work that language does all around us every day. Kristen, I was gonna say this conversation is so important for beginning teachers to have particularly as we think about the course that Eric and I both teach, it's a required course, State of Michigan. Originally, back in the day, it was called content area reading. Mm. And I think it's easy for courses like ours to be taught with a primary focus on reading and not so much on writing. Mm -hmm. And it had the course title expanded decades ago to include content area reading and writing. And now it's a, a sort of content area literacy and recognizing the multi-note. But I think even just knowing that history shows that thinking about writing and about our language and writing hasn't always been at the forefront as we think about teacher training. And so just grateful for this conversation. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Kristen, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, so to follow up on that, as we think about language and the focus on writing, there's also the component of speaking, right? So we, we have oral language and then written language. What are some facts about language that people might not know that they should know? Oh, that's a great question. So I'm going to start with a fact about language that I think people do know, but they don't really think about. And that's the fact that everyone speaks with an accent. Every speaker of every language, including speakers of the standardized American English, they all speak with an accent. So some accents are regional, like a Southern American English accent, or maybe an East Coast accent, like a Bostonian accent. I don't know if either of you are from areas outside of the Midwest, but maybe you have a, a home accent that you can speak. Can either of you do that? Deb can. Deb is from I like to say that I'm, I speak Canadian. It's a slight <laughs> difference then. So sometimes our accents are tied to regions, sometimes they're tied to home languages. So if you grow up speaking a dialect of a Mexican Spanish, then those particular Spanish sounds can influence your English sounds. So every American English speaker speaks with an accent, right? So standardized English is, has been normalized through the media. So national American news reporters and national radio hosts or actors on American sitcoms they all speak in the same way because they've been trained to do, they've learned that accent, but it's still an accented dialect of American English. Another language fact is that all languages are constantly changing and this matters a whole lot and here's why. So there's no such thing as like a stable standard language variety that's unchanging. You only have to read Shakespeare in its original early modern English to know that languages, including standard varieties like Shakespearean, uh, English, they're constantly changing. So if you've read Beowulf in Old English or Canterbury Tales in Middle English, then you'll, you can see how much English has, has changed. There's a lot of modern day examples too of English changing. So I'm going to give you a sample sentence and then I'm going to ask either of you if anything sounds unusual about it. So here's our sample sentence. Hopefully it won't rain today. Hopefully it won't rain today. Does anything about that sentence sound unusual to either of you? So there's this old grammar rule that has nearly faded out of use. And you're right that there's something going on with that, hopefully. And this grammar rule, it lingers among some editors and some English teachers. And the rule is this, 
You can't use hopefully as an adverb to describe a whole sentence because it's unclear. Who's doing the hoping? What does the hoping mean? How does the hoping function there? Grammatically, it just doesn't. But we use hopefully in other words as sentence adverbs all the time. Hopefully it won't rain today. You can probably figure out what I mean in the context. So languages are changing all the time. Another example is the word whom. Most people don't care that much about whom any longer. There are a few people who still are whom users. I tend to rewrite sentences to avoid using whom because I don't want to sound too stuffy. And here's why that matters. It's because everyone makes judgments about others based on how they speak. And we have this idea that there's this standard variety of the language that's unchanging, that is on a pedestal, that is perfected but language is always changing. And we make judgments about others based on how they speak, and we're judging them based on something that's changing all the time. So we've been trained or conditioned to make moral judgments about others based on their speech, and we make really quick judgments about whether someone is educated or uneducated, trustworthy or suspicious, like us or not like us, based on how they talk. So you might hear about, talk about racial or other kinds of profiling, and linguistic profiling, it's definitely happening all around us all the time. Thanks for that. As we think about those language facts, Kristen, and I know I'm familiar with some of your work, and I know that you discuss a concept called standard language ideology. This builds on what you've been talking about. Can you define this term though for us and give some examples of what this might look like in a school or classroom? Yes, absolutely. So ideology refers to one's system of beliefs. Your ideology, these beliefs, they're naturalized and you hold them really deeply and you unquestioningly believe them to be true. So ideologies are a bit tricky because they form our belief system, but we never really think about whether those beliefs are true or where they come from. So I'll give you an example and then I'll talk about what standard language ideology is and how that functions in schools. So here's an example. Um, I'm gonna give you a sentence again and we'll use this one. People break the law every day and sometimes they go to jail. People break the law every day and sometimes they go to jail. So some people's reaction to that statement is that the people who are in jail, they deserve to be there. If they didn't want to go to jail, they shouldn't have broken the law. Other people might respond by saying that as a society, we have failed a large portion of our jailed citizens by failing to provide adequate mental health care or education or opportunity for meaningful employment with livable wages, etc. So the statement that people break the law every day and sometimes they go to jail is a true statement, but our ideologies control how we think about that statement and then how we respond to it. So standard language ideology refers to people's naturalized, unquestioned beliefs that standard English or the dialect that I'm speaking right now that we use in school quite often, that dialect is somehow um, superior to other dialects of English, that it's more correct, that it's better, or that it indicates that somebody is intelligent, trustworthy, that they're hardworking and reliable. So standardized English is the dialect generally spoken by upper middle-class white Americans. And it's the dialect that we typically use in schools and that we expect in student writing. So the problem with standard language ideology is that we carry all of our judgments about languages into the classroom with us, often without realizing. We just accept that this is the dialect for school and that everybody should learn it and that it's just the normal way to use language in schools. So standardized American English becomes the benchmark and then other dialects that are not that standardized version are not hitting the mark. 
And so teachers might believe that students who are not speaking that standardized dialect, that they are less capable, less intelligent, less trustworthy. They might believe that a student's parents, if they don't speak English, that those parents are uneducated or less deserving of the teacher's time and attention. Teachers might reward students who have learned that standardized dialect at home with higher grades or more opportunities in the classroom. And then they might place students who don't grow up speaking standardized English into remedial classes, believing that they need extra help because they're not as capable as users of language. And it's just not true. So because the standardized form of English or the school English, it's modeled after the speech of upper class white middle, uh, upper, sorry, upper middle class white Americans, we're teaching students to talk like upper middle class white Americans, telling them that's the most preferred or correct way to use English in school, grading them according to how closely they can replicate that dialect. And this obviously advantages people who grow up speaking that way at home, and it obviously disadvantages students who don't grow up speaking that way at home. So there's some pretty significant race and class and other identity consequences for that in the classrooms. And we as teachers just we really have to be aware of those biases and to think really critically about how we can counteract those biases in our classrooms. So Kristen, as we think about what you just shared and the importance of, and I'm gonna put some words in your mouth, so tell me if I'm off. Sure. Being aware of our own biases and our own, as, as teachers, some of the things perhaps that we already have that inform what we think about language or what we have the judgments that we might be quick to use when we work with students, that even though we might have them, it doesn't mean we have to act on them and it means we can challenge them and question them and change them. So if we think about it that in that way that we have to unpack our own stuff, right? If we wanna be anti-racist, we actually have to name and, and acknowledge systemic racism. We have to, and, and it shows up in language, which is what you've shared. So what it, critical language awareness, what does that mean? And then what does that look like teaching across content areas at the secondary level? That's a great question. So the critical and critical language awareness, but critical does not mean criticism. It's critical as in critically important, like super important or critical thinking, like thinking really intentionally with the goal of figuring out what is true and understanding the systems that surround that. So for language, we're thinking about what is true about language and how is it impacting the power and systems that we see around us. So when we, whenever we assign writing tasks across our subject areas, we don't just toss a grading rubric at students as if these rubrics are just neutral artifacts because they aren't. Your grading rubric is probably going to contain some criteria about language correctness or language expectations. And language expectations are never neutral. So one aspect of a critical language awareness is being aware that when you ask students to turn work into you and it's written work, you're gonna have expectations and you have to think about with students, what should those expectations be? Should everything turned in be in a standardized version of English? And if so, why? And if so, why not? So it's really important to help students become critical reflectors on their own language use, their attitudes about language, and their own linguistic identities. What does it mean to be a person who speaks multiple languages or only one language in a school setting? What does that mean? And how does that play out for each of these people in that school community? Another really important aspect of a critical language awareness is to help students be critical readers of everything that comes their way in school. So when reading anything from a social studies textbook to a great American classic novel to 
a math story problem about Juan who buys 100 watermelons and you know meets up with Ernie who has 145 bananas or whatever it is, right? Um, you're entering into a relationship as a reader with the author of that text and the treatment of that subject matter. So we can model critical awareness by asking questions with our students. How does that textbook author present the topic? Is it from a Western Euro-American point of view? Is it not, right? Why do the authors include some parts of this history and not other parts of this history? So the key here is critical thinking. And we help students apply that to language, but also to all of their subject areas. We don't accept everything written as neutrally presented. We think critically about who writes the text how they present the material and why they present the material the way that they do. So one of the most important things that we can do as teachers of many subject areas is to teach our students to be careful users and receivers of language. So informally as teachers, we model this by not calling things crazy or dumb or lame because that kind of careless language use, it reinforces ableism and stigma around health. And we teach our students to be careful users of language in that same way. The words that we use, and this is an important lesson for our students, the words that we use, they can devastate someone or they can elevate someone. So students, for the most part, they mediate their thoughts about school, their learning and about themselves through language. So let's teach them to be critically aware of the language they use and the language that surrounds them. One final comment on this is that as teachers, if we value diversity, equity and inclusion, that has to apply to language. So we have to prefer a diversity of languages. We have to treat that diversity of languages with equity and with inclusion. So this means teaching that standardized English is one dialect of a language, but teaching that all dialects are equally capable of carrying meaning. Selecting a dialect for spoken or written work, it's a rhetorical choice. And students need to understand what it means to sort through all their dialects and all their languages and then to choose one for an assignment in school or for a conversation with a peer because every dialect carries social meaning and does social work. So Kristen, just to follow up on that, we have a lot of um, colleagues that are music teachers or physical education or health teachers or art teachers. What would you say to teachers who would say, hey, I'm, I don't really teach writing, I don't, because you get great, gave a great example about math, I could see it with science. What would you say specifically to our colleagues that are doing, and frankly, some of the best classes for students that keep them in school would be performing arts and health and um, PE and art. How would you, what would you say to those teachers? It's a great question. School is still done by and large through language. So the language that we use with students is really important. The way that we talk about art and music from different cultures and dance and movement and sports from other cultures, it's really important that we present those as equally important, equally viable as the American culture that some of our students would be more familiar with. Um, we can be really intentional about selecting curriculum that represents a variety of different ways of making meaning, of knowing things, of music. And we can be really intentional of being inclusive of diversity of all kinds in our classroom spaces. I have two elementary age kids. And the first time that one of my kids came home and said, we did a really weird thing today in music. Uh, I was like, what did you do? What do you mean it was weird? She said, like, we listened to salsa music and then we danced. I'm like, what about that was weird? And it's just something that my kids hadn't been exposed to at home. And so the attitudes that teachers have in the classroom shapes how they interpret and understand new experiences. And what a cool opportunity teachers have to introduce students to something new from a culture they might not otherwise encounter.
it's a real privilege. And I'm so glad that we have teachers from all content areas and specials who can help our students encounter new things in school every day. It's an amazing privilege. As we, as our listeners, beginning teachers um, think about language and about how they might use language and how they might encourage your students to question the language of text or assignments, those sorts of things. What, what resources would you recommend? Sure. One thing that can be challenging for us as teachers is that we are pretty comfortable in schools. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't become teachers. We like school has worked out okay for us. So it's important for us to understand how other students who might feel less comfortable in schools, for us to understand how they feel. It's important for us as teachers to put ourselves in, in spaces in which we might feel uncomfortable from time to time. So I would say one thing that you can do is to intentionally spend time in a place where your identity is not the majority identity. So some of you do this every single day. Others of you will have to make a real effort to be in a space where you have a minority identity. And then when you're there, think about your experience from a student's perspective. So as a student, right, it's your job to do the things everyone else is doing, the math problem set, the English reading, the science lab, and then you'll be evaluated on that. So when you go to a place where you're a minority, Think about how you could be accommodated so that you would feel comfortable in that space. And then think about how you can make those kinds of accommodations for your students so that all students have better access in the classroom. Another recommendation I have would be to assume that you have a great diversity in your classroom because you do. And then to value that diversity and also to normalize it. So everybody in your classroom should have a regular time and a space to share. And you might find at first, I know I did, that we as teachers, we make a lot of assumptions about students that are inaccurate. So we read our students when, we, when they first come into the classroom and think that we know things about them that might not be true. So by giving time and a space to share, you get to actually know your students and it benefits everybody to have an opportunity to share and to hear from others. As a writing teacher, early in the semester, I like to have my students write a literacy narrative. So they think about their languages and specifically about how their languages and identity are intertwined. And then we share our narratives with one another. So we become aware of who else is in the room and it really builds community and it normalizes all the difference that exists in our community. So younger kids, they can do this too. They could talk about foods and festivals and traditions and holidays and families. There's lots of ways for students to share who they are in classroom spaces. If you're looking for more research, there's tons of research about languages and student experiences and student outcomes in the disciplinary journals. So for English teachers, this would be English journal or research in the teaching of English. And you come across tons of studies of different ways that teachers are questioning their own privilege in classroom spaces and then also working on greater diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives in their classrooms as well. Thanks, Kristen. I want to come back out bigger picture for this next question. You have been a high school teacher in the past. And as you think about all the challenges today facing today's educators, what advice in general do you have for beginning teachers? It is, it is a challenging time to be an educator. Educators have to do so much in the classroom. My biggest piece of advice is to look for ways to make your job easier. And let me give you a few ways you can do this. So one way to make your job as a teacher easier is to focus on influencing and teaching students through your relationship with them. So get to know your, your students. It's not 
wasted time to ask them how they spent their weekends or to ask them how their sports are going or outside of the classroom, what do you like to do? That's not wasted time. That's some of the most important time that you have as a teacher. You'll find then that it's easier to plan and teach and get your students on board because they trust you and they like you. And if they trust you because they feel that you know them and have given them meaningful work to do, then they'll want to answer your questions in class and do your homework and pay attention because they value the relationship that you have with them. Other ways to make your job easier, don't collect and grade homework that doesn't need to be collected and graded. Don't collect sets of essays from your students before they're ready for your evaluation. Make sure they've done all the work they can do on that writing before you spend your time giving them your expert evaluation. Don't as assign work that you're not excited to talk about the next day and go over with students. If you need to know, you know whether students have learned a concept today, give them a really quick and easy way to do this. Have them do the work. So tell them to write down on a note card what they think the answer to your question is, and then hand it to you on the way out of the class. You can read those responses right there during that passing time between bells. Recycle all the ones that are right or right enough. And now which students need a review tomorrow, but it took you three minutes, right? So you're gonna look for ways to make your job easier. Another way to make your job easier is to be a generous collaborator with your colleagues. Share your ideas. Your lives are busy now. They're only going to get busier, especially if you decide you know, to have children. So share your work. Graciously accept lesson plans and work and ideas from others. Every lesson doesn't have to be perfect, right? It has to be meaningful. It doesn't have to be perfect. So sharing and using work from others, this makes your job easier. Also trust yourself. So other teachers will have more experience than you when you're first starting out in your teaching career, but your youth and your cultural knowledge, this is an asset. So, and you have fresh pedagogical ideas that's going to benefit your whole teaching team. And you've just sat in classrooms with 15 or 18 other students and they're sharing their new and exciting ideas. And you take all of those ideas with you now to your new teaching teams and it's, it benefits everyone. If I could leave you with a final word, it would be the word grace. So if you don't know the word grace, you need to know it. Grace means forgiveness. It means humility. It means generosity. And it's all wrapped up in a single word. So you're going to forgive yourself when you teach a lesson poorly or teach something incorrectly. When you assign a reading that you should have known that students wouldn't be interested in. When you lose a student's homework, yes, we sometimes lose students' homework. When you collect too many papers to possibly grade in a reasonable time, you're going to forgive. You're going to forgive your colleagues when they have a bad day or a bad season and you have to plan for them again and run their copies for them again when they're when they're short with you or they make a mistake. You're going to show them grace because we all need grace and sometime that's going to be you. You're going to be the one texting a colleague frantically. Can you please make 30 copies of these? And then especially you're going to show grace to your students. They are stressed out, they are anxious. They are uncertain humans living in constantly changing bodies, right? So your class may not be the most important thing they have going on today, but it could be the best thing that they have going on today. You have that opportunity. So through your words and the assignments you give them, through the reading you assign, your feedback, your attitude toward them, you have the opportunity every day to give them hope and peace and comfort and to set boundaries and provide stability that they need. So don't waste that opportunity. And then finally, take good care of yourself. It's another form of grace. You're not special, right? You're just normal. And I mean that in a good way. You have to eat and sleep and have fun and see your friends. You're more than what you do. You're more than what you produce. So you're going to teach with grace and you're going to have grace enough for yourself to set your work down sometimes, knowing that you did the best that you could for today and you're going to walk away until tomorrow. The work is always going to be there. But your health and the people who you need 
these things are not promised. So you have to take good care of yourself in order to be a good teacher. Kristen, I want to listen to that again and again at the beginning of a semester, in the middle of a semester, at the end of the semester. Thank you for unpacking that small word in so many beautiful ways. And truly, I think that the hope I have for my pre-service teachers, for teachers in general, for um, myself as an educator, and love the ways that some ways you operationalize, right? What does grace look like in all these different contexts? So thank you for that gift to our listeners and to me and Erica as well. Right before we end uh, the episode, Kristen, we do have a surprise question that we ask all of our guests and it fits with literacy. And in many ways, it builds on what you've already just talked about. In the literacy course that Erica and I teach, we talk about the importance of affirming and acknowledging and drawing on, bridging sometimes students out of school literacy practices. You talked about that, about asking students what they did over the weekends, finding out they play baseball isn't something that is just wasted time, but then it becomes something you can refer to or celebrate the different vocabulary and the different ways of acting and being, right? That a student does on a baseball. So given that, what is your baseball team equivalent that you might want to um, share with our listeners? What's an out-of-school literacy practice, a hobby, a sport, cultural, religious, ethnic group that you actively participate in outside of school and within which you've developed vocabulary and different ways of talking or being or learning or et cetera? What's one that you participate in and enjoy? Oh, what a great question. Every weekend, I go to a church, a local church in Grand Rapids, where I live, and I work at the, like the front desk where I volunteer at the front desk where you first come in we call it starting point. And it's my job to look for people who might be new and who are new to church and try to catch their attention and try to flag them down and like give them a little gift and to welcome them and say, I'm so glad that you're here today. What brought you here? Do you live in the area? Do you work nearby? Do you have a church background? This is your first time ever at a church. We're so glad that you're here. And so through that, I meet people from all different kinds of religions backgrounds. I have met people who grew up Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant Reformed, like all different kinds of backgrounds. And so I have learned that people express their spirituality or their relationship with God or higher being or whatever it is in so many different ways. And what I love about that is because I grew up as a person who was religious. And so I learned one expression of faith really deeply, really intimately, like to my core. And I never really thought about other people's ways of knowing and experiencing and their other cultural practices of the same religion that I had put in a box. And so I have never felt so expanded and um, so like, grateful for the education that others have provided me as I have standing behind that desk, hearing other people talk with different language and describe different experiences of the same thing that I thought I knew so well. And it's been so freeing. And it's been really great. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad that you, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, it's an area of research that I'm really fascinated by because I think it's underdeveloped in our field as right. we think about research, but then also with teachers, our students come with varying, not always, but some very, their, their religious identities are mm -hmm. so key to them. And, and as you express so beautifully, there's, and there's different ways of reading a text, reading the Bible, singing a song. The kind of building, synagogue, mosque, church, right? These are all very different kinds of spaces. And how do we see and celebrate those differences in many ways? And how do we even just acknowledge them? So it's a fantastic answer to our fun question at the end, Kristen. Thanks for that. Kristen, thanks for joining us for today's episode. For those of you listening in, thank you for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. 
We are Deb Van Dynen and Erica Hamilton wishing you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy.